United Lutheran Seminary presents the Seminary Explores podcast, conversations on faith, art, people, politics, theology, life, and more, with voices from around the corner and around the globe. Welcome to the Seminary Explores. I'm Katie Giebenhain. My guest is Andrew Taylor Troutman, pastor of Chapel in the Pines, a Presbyterian congregation, PCUSA, in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. He is the author of four books, and his new book, coming out later this spring, is called Hope Matters, Churchless Sermons in the Coronavirus. His articles, essays, and poems have appeared in Sojourners, Ruminate, Bearings Online, Presbyterian Outlook, The Chatham News Records, and elsewhere. Taylor Troutman holds a Master of Divinity from Union Presbyterian Seminary and a Master of Arts in Religious Studies from the University of Virginia. From Lenore Rhine University, he earned both his Bachelor of Arts in History and a Graduate Certificate in Narrative Healthcare. Prior to his call at Chapel in the Pines, he served New Dublin Presbyterian Church in Dublin, Virginia. He and his wife, Ginny, who is also a graduate of Union Presbyterian Seminary, have three children. Andrew Taylor Troutman, welcome to the Seminary Explorers. Thank you so much, Katie. I'm delighted to be here. So you were asked to serve as a volunteer poll chaplain on Election Day. What was that like? <laughs> well, the nonprofit here in North Carolina was concerned uh, about rumors primarily from other places in the country, um, but some rumors here locally that there could be instances of voter intimidation on election day mm -hmm. uh, where people could come out and either um, issue threats or, or even just misinformation uh, to try and hold down the vote. So their idea uh, was they could get clergy, uh, both Christian pastors and other denominations uh, to be what they called a moral authority um, that we were supposed to make our make our presence vis visible, excuse me, uh, in hopes that that would uh, deter people um, potentially um, from even trying to start something. And then if if something did break out, uh, we could use some of our skills in in de-escalation hmm. uh, to hopefully resolve this peacefully. And I so. Oh, go ahead, please. I was going to say, I think I remember reading that you um, wore a clergy shirt for the first time for this That's right. occasion. Yeah, yes. Yeah. So I'm a Presbyterian pastor. Uh, my congregation, uh, the attire would be described as casual, I believe, mm -hmm. by most people. Uh, so it's not in my tradition or in my current call to wear a clerical collar. Um, but because this idea of the, the moral authority, the visible symbol, of the clergy, um, the nonprofit asked asked us to wear clerical collars. <laughs> so I, I ordered my first one, <laughs> and uh, I was a little concerned uh, that I was just going to get a Halloween costume because it was so inexpensive. But uh, it it looked like the real deal, and uh, I had to say it was it was uh, it was kind of a thrill to put it on. Uh, it was uncomfortable though, and I haven't worn it since. <laughs> 
And did things end up actually going pretty pretty smoothly for you at your polling station? You know, they were incredibly smooth. Um, we had no instances of, of anything that could be perceived as a, a act of aggression or intimidation. Um, in fact, the, the biggest thing that I'll say about the day is the, um, the lack of actual in-person voters. Mm-hmm. Um, our, our county had the highest uh, mail-in ballots in the state of North Carolina. And um, I mean, honestly, Katie, for most of the day, it was just a trickle of people. Um, and what was interesting about that? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I will say that um, we had a record number of voters in our county for this election. We've never had that so many people vote before. It's just that the vast majority of them uh, were through the mail. And, um, you know, so from, from my experience, what I did is spend a lot of time talking to volunteers um, from mm. both of the two major political parties. And, um, you know, th- there were some instances where I was even able to coax them out from under their tents. <laughs> <laughs> and engage one another a little bit. I, I, it would be a stretch to say that uh, anyone made a new friend, but <laughs> we were we were friendly, and uh, that was that was helpful. That was helpful. Well, and you never know how much a single encounter like that will carry forward. Uh, you know, I appreciate you saying that. Yeah, we uh, we have the metaphor uh, from Jesus about sowing seeds. And uh, I, th- I think about that in terms of what could have happened that day. Mm, absolutely. Well, tell us about this phrase, churchless sermons. Yeah, it's a, um, it's a subtitle of a book by um, David James Duncan, uh, who's most known for his fiction, um, The Brothers K and The River Y. Mm-hmm. Um, but he uh, comes at the perspective of, of someone who grew up in the church, but um, in a fundamental uh, flavor of Christianity and was really alienated from that. And uh, so he um, is certainly very uh, articulate about the Christian faith and, and his writings displays a, an insightful grasp, particularly of the gospels. Uh, but he would not identify as uh, someone in the church. And he also wants to bring in other spiritual voices along um, and other figures along with Jesus. So uh, not only the Abrahamic traditions, but some of the Eastern uh, traditions. And so this, this idea of a, a churchless sermon, um, the way I use it is I, I wrote a weekly op-ed a tour editorial for our local newspaper. And I was upfront that I was, that I am a Christian pastor, um, but I was not envisioning my audience as exclusively or specifically uh, someone in the church. I, I wanted to write in such a way um, that I spoke from my tradition, but really uh, invited people of different religions, including those who would claim to have no practicing religion um, to, to really see um, common ground, I would say, Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. but but also to seek some clarity about what was going on in our larger century. So um, 
I didn't very clear that I was not out to proselytize or to convert anyone. Um, but I did want, want to inspire some commitments um, to, to things, to justice um, mm-hmm. policies that I, that I saw to, to current events that were going on uh, both at a national level and also here locally. Do you have a, um, like an excerpt or a piece um, from one of these um, that you could read for us? Sure. Um, you know, the, the book itself starts, um, it's the, the editorial that was published the week, really the shutdown came to North Carolina. Oh, so a year uh, ago. Exactly a year ago. Mm-hmm. And then it ends um, with just this, this past week's, <laughs> my book ends with just this past week's editorial, which marks a full year. Um, so I thought it might be interesting uh, for me to just read an excerpt from, from the last chapter of this book. Because um, it's, it's me kind of reflecting back on, on what I was trying to do here. Yeah, that sounds great. Um, so I guess just to set this up, I'm, I'm talking about, um, there's this phrase from um, the writer Zora Neale Hurston, who talks about faith as an inside thing to live by. Mm-hmm. And so I'm talking about these things, these stories, these inside things to live by. During the pandemic, the creek that runs through the woods behind my neighborhood has been my family's refuge. Several years ago, a large oak fell across the water from one side of the bank to the other. I've often sat on the fallen trunk, legs dangling over the creek and watch my kids play along the bank or in the water. There were times when my mind wandered to my to-do list or fretted over my worries. But other moments, I have breathed slowly and given thanks. I hope we cross to the other side of this pandemic as we journey ahead. I hope each of us finds our own Inside things to live by, music that moves us, quiet places that still us, love that comforts and inspires us. Mm, Thank you. Our inside places. That's lovely. I'm curious, as you were, (laughs) as you were preparing these, did you feel like you were in the same sort of groove that you are when you're preparing a sermon that you would deliver from the pulpit? Oh, that's a really interesting question. Uh, I tend to believe that writing begets more writing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And uh, so it's true that um, there were many of these uh, weekly editorials that started as something uh, that I cut from a sermon, um, mm-hmm. you know, the process of, of r- sermon writing for me is always a matter of, of trying to whittle down to try and get to a main point to deepen a message. And um, so in the course of sermon preparation, you maybe come up with these insights about the text or there's, there's something in the larger culture that you would like to speak to or, or even an antidote. And it just doesn't fit <laughs> in the sermon. Yeah. 
And, and so sometimes I would use those um, as a jumping off point. Um, I was very conscious that um, my, the audience for this, this local paper was, was interested uh, both in, in national events, so things like Black Lives Matter protest and certainly the presidential election, the, the attack on the Capitol building. Um, but they were, you know, the local newspapers role, they, they really tried to enter into those national topics through our local experience. And, um, you know, I think in some ways that is the, the direct tie-in to sermon writing. Um, mm. You want to, you have these big topics, say like, like a topic in theology or uh, a story that comes from the tradition uh, that you find in scriptures. And, and you want to figure out for people how this connects with their experience. Um, so in, in that way, I was, the, the topics for the editorial were different, for the churchless sermons were different. Um, it wasn't the same source material, but I thought of it, I approached it in a similar way. Very interesting. Something else that occurred to me when you're talking about the audience, mm -hmm. what you described not only for the, the larger themes and the, the, the sort of local themes um, and up close and personal, and also for sort of all faiths and no faith is that was sort of describing a chaplain's audience too. That just, I couldn't help thinking, oh yeah, that's what a chaplain does. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> because especially yeah. if you're at a, a like a, a public hospital or a setting where you're dealing with the public, then it's this, it's a particular openness and you're honest about the tradition that you are representing or that you are trained in, but you are very clearly there in a, in a different type of ministry for a, a public audience. I think you're absolutely right. I think that's a very astute observation. Um, and I hadn't really thought about it in that terms, Katie, but that, so that, that's really helpful for me. <laughs> and one other thing that I couldn't help but, uh -huh. but think of um, is when you said um, for sermon prep, you know, this this process of whittling down, how important that mm -hmm. is. I was mm -hmm. like, oh, and that's also the editing process for a poem is like that, too, because these two forms, I find, yes. have a lot in common. And you really need to get to it. You can't have a lot of la, la, la <laughs> in either sermon yes. or poem if you want to keep people. Yes. Yes, that is so true. We gotta, we gotta cut out the la la la. <laughs> <laughs> you may have just coined my favorite editing phrase. <laughs> I love that. So there's something else I, I'm curious about. I think that our um, that the seminary explorers listeners also would be really interested in is going back to your first book. You chose to write a memoir about your first call, which is a, real, a very specific choice. Um, a lot of times when we hear memoir, we think of someone writing at the end of a career or after um, particular experiences. And I'm really am interested in your choice right off the bat to say, I'm going to uh, write this about my first call. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I had, I had older colleagues, uh, 
tease me about that very thing. <laughs> <laughs> you don't, they said, you're barely shaving and you've already written your memoir, huh? <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I, I called it a, the subtitle was a theological memoir. Mm-hmm. True. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, which at the time um, was kind of my way of, of rationalizing. <laughs> this choice um what i was really clear about is that i had an outstanding seminary education and Mm. i learned an incredible amount that i that i did not know during my first year both those things were true um and so what that book is Part of half of that book really is it's sermons that I preached that year. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's a sermon collection, uh, and then but the the chapters before it are kind of like the material that inspired those sermons. Mm-hmm. And so the way I the way I thought of it um, was reflecting um, on my experience, my day to day experience through my theological education. And so the, the, the memoir piece of it was, was not so much um, uh, like looking back in time because it was all, you know, very close. It was more the, the specific lens mm-hmm. of kind of theory applied to praxis, if that makes sense. Definitely. And that's your, that's right at the point where the rubber hits the road because you're coming mm-hmm. out of, I'm certainly there's theory and practice mixed um, in seminary, but when you are mm-hmm. coming, when you get that first parish or that first assignment, um, yeah, that's absolutely uh, what's, what you're in the midst of. And I want to thank you for doing this because I think not just for pastors, but for other professions too. It can be intimidating when so much that you hear is from people who are deeply experienced and have a lot of Mm. wisdom. And even if you're really admiring of them and learning a lot from them, there's also a real and raw curiosity about, okay, how do I do this now um, in my context? And I think hearing from someone who's also closer to your starting point is very interesting. So I want to thank you for giving that a go, despite, you know, what, like you said, some, what, what some people might have teased you a little bit. But I think it's a, I think it's a really, just a really um, interesting premise. And I'm glad that you did that. I appreciate that. I, I remember one conversation I had with my father, who is a career uh, parish pastor. And I was telling him about this project and um, I was like, you know, dad, I, sometimes I feel like this is like, like the blooper reel that you see. <laughs> the movie. Like this is, this is me. Like, and I was, cause I'm just writing about all the, yeah, now the mistakes that I made. Yeah. And, and, um, and he was like, Andrew, I think what you're writing is a love letter to that church. Oh, because you're willing um, to show um, how much you care about them by, by and, and I don't want to overstate the point, you know, anytime you, you write something that is in a sense, a projection of yourself, right? Mm-hmm. It's not a, it's not a raw vulnerability, mm-hmm. but I, I was aware um, uh, that in order for this to work, 
uh, at least the way I wanted it to be. It took a, it took a level of vulnerability. And um, I really did and, and continue to, to love that congregation. Uh, so if you can, if you can get, you know, if you can get to a point like that, all you people out there in seminary that might listen to it, uh, if, if you find a place where you can trust them uh, enough with your vulnerability, um, then it's really, a, it can be a beautiful ministry. Hmm. You know what, what else this reminds me of, what you just said? Um, there is something from your statement of faith from your last call, from your current call, um, you know, in the in the process of that call, you had to, you know, put put out the usual statement of faith as as everyone is mm-hmm. is asked to do. But there was, um, and it was I thought it was beautifully written. But there was one line that that jumped out to me, and that was quote, "I believe in a living poem known as the Church." Quote. <laughs> And that sort of resonates with what you just said about the trust and also this, this sense of kind of a love letter to a congregation. And I was just wondering if you had anything to say about this. I love that, a living poem known as the church. Yeah, I, <laughs> I'm honored that you would do your research so well on me. <laughs> <laughs> That's... Um, yeah, you know, I, I think when I think about, you know, a poem as in terms of a, like a poetry recital, it, it really is a, an interactive experience. <laughs> uh, the, the poet and the audience, there's, there's something happening between them. It's, mm-hmm. in it, and um, I think that's, that's part of where I was going with that. Um, there's also a phrase in Paul's letters, and I can't remember offhand right where it is, but he talks about um, how we, the church, were the the handiwork or the workmanship mm-hmm. of God, and and that word is what gives us our word for poetry, that mm. Greek word, mm-hmm. and so it's also a a riff on that. Um, but I don't know. You know, the other thing I think about the church being a poem, you know, it, it becomes more experiential, but also there's a sense that it's less didactic, don't you think? Mm-hmm. I mean, like, yeah, um, and that's not to systematic theology has its place, but, um, you know, a poem, it moves you, <laughs> it inspires mm-hmm. you. It can mean different things, uh, even to the same person at different times, right? Uh, yes, yes, the, that, the same thing that we hear over and over. You hear a, a text, but then the next uh, year, you and the world are at a different place than that text was last year when you heard it. Absolutely true. Absolutely true. And so that's a that's a fairly common phrase, you know, the Bible as the living word. And uh, so, you know, the, the idea that the living poem, it's a, it's a slant on that, too. Very nice. I really appreciate that. Well, is there anything that you'd like to leave us with? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Big, broad I, you know, question. I, well, I, I guess what I would want to say to uh, those in, in seminary is um, uh, be bold. 
hmm. in this call. Um, I was recently asked um, what the pandemic, like what will be the effects of the pandemic. And there are many different ways that I could answer that. But um, what, what the first thing that came to mind and is that the pandemic for me confirmed my call as a parish pastor. Hmm. And that is not at all to diminish this, the great suffering that has taken place. And, and I, I certainly want to be upfront about that. I'm, I'm, and then just so much grief. Um, but what I saw um, is the church has a place to be creative, um, to speak um, a prophetic hope and ultimate assurance in a time that has been so fraught with change. Hmm. And when we are so aware of how fragile we are, in many ways, uh, I have been incredibly privileged as a parish pastor to see how people in my congregation responded in, in holy ways to this change where they, they really, I, I imagine there was still some fear, but they, they really stepped out in, in faith. And that, that is the kind of uh, faith that I want to have. That's the kind of faith community that I want to be a, a part of. Mm. So don't, so be bold. Seminarians. It's, um, there's, there's certainly much to be said uh, about the perilous state of the church at this time in this country and, and about its great, great, great losses. Um, but more than ever uh, during the pandemic, I saw a transformation um, that looks much more like uh, labor pains, birthing something new than, than the death pangs. Hmm. Excellent. Thank so, you. Uh, yeah. So I think it's a, it's an, it could be an amazing time uh, to, to enter parish ministry. Thank you for that. You've been listening to The Seminary Explores. I'm Katie Giebenhain. My guest has been Andrew Taylor Troutman, pastor of Chapel in the Pines in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Visit their website, citppc.org and visit the publisher of his forthcoming book, parsonsporch.com. Andrew is also on Facebook at at A. Taylor Troutman. Thank you so much for your time. It's been a real gift to me, Katie. Thank you. You have been listening to The Seminary Explores, a production of United Lutheran Seminary with campuses in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania and Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We invite you to visit our website at unitedlutheranseminary.edu. Opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of United Lutheran Seminary or the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America.